From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. When it comes to studio design, I can't think of a better person to chat with than Kevin Mason, who happens to be this week's guest. His thoughtful approach to creating spaces for creatives and creators is fascinating to discuss, and its effectiveness is evidenced by the way that his clients use their space. We welcome Kevin back to his third appearance on this podcast. If you want to hear more from him, you can go back to episodes 34 and 44. Before we jump into the episode, a quick note about this podcast. In the near future, there will be some changes coming to this podcast. Some of them are boring administrative changes, and some are pretty exciting. But those changes necessitated missing an episode last week, and possibly this episode releasing a bit late. We'll see about that. But thank you to those of you that reached out concerned about that we didn't have an episode last week. We are back on track, and we're going to be announcing some things that I think are very exciting in the near future. So with that, let's get into our conversation with Kevin Mason. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Joining me for this episode, the director of Studio Workflow, Kevin Mason. Hey, Kevin, welcome back to the show. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, you know, I couldn't remember off the top of my head, and I was trying to look it up, but we've done... This will be episode 135 of this podcast. You've been on at least once, but I think twice. Am I right about that? Yeah, I've been on it twice, but way, way back. Yeah, it's been a while. So first of all, how have you been? You've been busy. I know that Studio Workflow has been putting out a lot of content. You've been asking the tough questions like strobe versus LED, which I do want to talk about, but we don't have to start off with that. What kind of things are you up to right now? Yeah, it, it has been busy. And yes, there's been a lot of blog content that's come out. I've got projects that I can't really discuss in any great detail. But what I can say is that we've been designing studios as we go. Since we last spoke, we've done a studio that's 40,000 square feet in Brooklyn. That's a pretty sizable space. And we've done a kitchen content studio here in Germany as well. So yeah, we're, we're busy doing kind of physical spaces, but also working on this idea of kind of 3D and virtual spaces as well. A kitchen studio sounds like a really interesting thing to tackle because there are many workflow things you really need to think about. Where are the cooking facilities? Where are the waste disposal facilities and all of that kind of thing? Is there anything interesting you can share with us about the process of designing a a food-based studio? Yeah, there's a lot of things. Actually, because it's an interesting concept for me to kind of look at because actually it's a studio that's based here in Europe, but also they've got a global audience. So one of the things we had to immediately kind of consider, and we were working with an architect also with this, is, you know, what is the aesthetic? You know, what kind of cabinets and units do you want, for example? And how does that cater to an American audience as opposed to a European audience? But also, are we trying to create a space that looks like someone's home interior? Or is it a bit more of a commercial kitchen? Or is it that kind of Netflix cooking show kitchen? Those are yeah, it's a great British bake-off kitchen with a bunch of islands yeah. and little tiny ovens. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then one of the things that I was kind of keen to do is, and always with these projects, is get as many different kind of potential shooting formats that we could into that. So, you know, maybe we have an island that you can then turn into kind of still life shooting area, or maybe you've got the kitchen counter that becomes the kind of home cooking area. So Mm. we're trying to kind of get a lot of those considerations into the plan. But then there are also the real technical side of things of, you know, how much 
is the audio clipping in the space? How much is it bouncing off the cupboards? And what materials do you want to put in there? And a lot of the time you've got really premium materials that actually they seem to bounce sound around all over the place. Yeah. So there were kind of lots of things from the planning side that we had to just test and test and test. And then there was a lot of it that, you know, we had to just get in that space and then do some test shooting for them. One of the interesting things for me was the client actually kind of said to me, well, you can bring in the content team also and train our team. So I brought a a food director over from England and stylist, and we started to work with them to make that content. And we had a good week or two weeks of sort of discovery and also trying Mm. to iron out some of those problems that came from it. But yeah, sound is a big thing. Steam is a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Ventilation, period, because that's, you know, one burned bag of popcorn and nobody wants to work in the studio. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also one of the, the interesting challenges for me is that the client is very focused on showing their product. And also we had to get that balance between actually what is the content? Is it kind of a cooking show and then the product sort of gets lost? Or is it just about a particular way to use the product and trying to get that balance of, you know, what is the content strategy at the same time as you're developing the studio was a real challenge. Mm. And I think also during that process, like the idea of food on TikTok sort of exploded. And it's a very different way. Yeah. Of filming and shooting and, you know, trying to get, do we bring that into the mix or do we not bring it into the mix at this point? So, But absolutely a huge market to tackle. I mean, just even you saying that right now, it's made me realize that I think I like to cook. I enjoy cooking. At least once a week, I try to cook something new to me. And I think probably 90% of my recent new recipes that I've cooked have come from either Instagram or TikTok. Like, I think that that's how I'm discovering new dishes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would really agree with that. I think for almost any content at the minute, I've sort of become TikTok obsessed in the past few months. And, you know, I think there's really interesting content on there. But the way that people are making content is kind of mind-blowing to me. Yeah, You know, it's it's very freestyle. It's about making mistakes. It's very loose. I love it. I'm kind of obsessed with that way of making content. How do you sort of squeeze that approach into a professional content studio and look like you're still doing your job is is also very intriguing. And also have that sort of not betray the fact that you might be backed by a huge corporation or something, you know? This is a great segue into something that I wanted to talk with you about. You had posted about Zalando introducing their own version of basically Instagram stories, right? And that was a really interesting and novel sort of thing. I'm unaware of any other brands that have done it this way. But when you go on Zalando's website, it looks exactly like Instagram stories. It's sort of like card format video clips that you can kind of flip through and then they're chunked into like sort of groups. But a big part of it is behind the scenes content, which is the exact kind of thing a lot of the more forward thinking brands were using stories and reels for anyway on Instagram is like, you got a photo shoot going on. Why don't you have somebody in there with a smartphone getting that behind the scenes um, content? But as you are a huge sort of evangelist of, and this is your, a lot of your business, I believe, is, is built around this, is like your studio should be reflective of the brand as well. If you're going to produce this kind of content and you want to do it well and you want it to be cohesive brand experience, your studio can't just look like a big concrete box with a few things set up here and there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I am very passionate about that thing. I, I really think the idea of getting brand story into studios is is really, really important. And exactly for that reason, you know, I think that, Content creation is going to obviously continue to grow. The way it's growing is very loose and it's very freeform. And you want to create a studio environment that someone can just turn up and they can shoot almost any aspect of your studio and it's branded in some way. I think also, though, the interesting thing for me is like how subtle can that be? Maybe it just shows you've taken care of the spaces. It doesn't need to say, you know, the brand name in it because that could destroy a lot of things. 
Um, but it's about giving the content teams a lot of freedom to go, oh, there's a nice corner that we can shoot in and we've got some good daylight, but also we know that we can rig a light up here if we need to. And it's sort of opening up that white box. That That's what I'm really passionate about. And I have to say, I wasn't involved in the way the Zalando has started to make that content creation now. I just think it's really fascinating and I love it. And similar to you, I hadn't really seen anyone else doing that. But when we designed the studio, I really wanted to create those little like vignettes for them, those little spaces where you could free up the content. Yeah, that that's that was one of the things that really stood out to me on top of what you, you know, thinking about it from a studio standpoint and thinking about how we can leverage the actual process of producing these assets, because that's still what we're doing at the end of the day. These little video clips look like really sexy marketing materials, but they're a byproduct of you shooting PDP stuff most of the time. Or, you know, sometimes it's editorial, but whatever the, whatever it is, it's stuff that you need for other marketing channels or for the PDP. But this content is a byproduct of that. What struck me about this is that we talk all the time. And when I say we, I mean the royal we of like everybody in business talks all the time about owning the sandbox that you put your content into, or maybe that's not the greatest analogy, but like you don't own Instagram, you don't own Twitter. And I think a lot of people learned this <laughs> the hard way recently about Twitter, mm -hmm. building businesses that leverage Twitter. And then something happens to Twitter that changes the nature of your business so that it's no longer viable. If your entire marketing strategy is about putting that content out on somebody else's platform, you're not guaranteed that platform in the future. What Zalando has done is they've, they say, I'm sure they're still putting this stuff out on Instagram. I'm sure it's making its way to TikTok, but it has a home that Zalando owns. So you'll always be able to go back there and, and have that content available. Yeah, for sure. And I think the interesting thing that they're trying to do, and I think a lot of this came out of COVID also, is that they're trying to sort of build a sense of community around their space. And I think that's really interesting. And it's also interesting how they're bringing creators within their space and the, the, they're putting on live events, which again, you know, other people have done and Amazon Fashion used to do live events as well. But they're trying to say, actually, our website or our content hub is a community space. And I, I think that is really interesting and doesn't maybe leave them as exposed as, like you said, with the thing with X or Twitter at this point. But also, I guess on the flip side of that, you know, Zalando is, is a big machine and, you know, they have a lot of budget to do those things. We're talking about one of the biggest fashion companies in all of Europe, but, you know, right. just yeah. for, I think like everybody in Europe, all of our European listeners are aware of this, but I think there's a large chunk of our U.S. listeners that maybe aren't aware how big Zalando is. It is a huge company in Europe. Sure. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, until I moved over to Berlin, I wasn't as aware of how dominant they were. But also, you know, I live in Berlin, there's a big company in Berlin, but obviously, yeah, their fashion reach is, is huge. But they are getting, I think they're finding the right creators. They're finding kind of small niche yeah. creators as well, micro-influencers, and they're, they're bringing them into that process. And you can really get a tone of voice from, from them, from the material that they're, they're putting out, which is really interesting. I wasn't expecting to have this particular conversation with you, Kevin, but I have been thinking about it recently. And I feel like, you know, you, you're sort of a, I get the sense you like to geek out about this kind of like social content stuff. So maybe we can have a chat about it. I have wondered often why when the big companies jump immediately into content creator, like making content that appears as though it's made by an individual content creator, but it's on behalf of a big company. And it always seems like it just doesn't have, it, f it has a level of insincerity to it. It doesn't feel super sincere. And I think the reason for that is, is that there's this organic growth of community when you're an individual content creator and that content becomes really well-performing 
because you have this relationship with your audience that like when you're a large brand and you suddenly decide you're going to run ads on Instagram stories or whatever that are designed to look like some individual person's content, it doesn't have that level of sort of audience engagement or even the way that the person, the talent in that content itself is delivering it doesn't feel quite the same. And I think it's because that sense of community isn't there. You haven't earned it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Do you have thoughts about this? I do. And you're right. I do kind of geek out about it. I mean, I have conversations through Instagram and other areas and models that I used to shoot. You know, how do they feel shooting that content? When have branders approached them and said, okay, we want you to shoot some stuff and you can style the looks and so on. Because for me, it's a similar thing. There's often a disconnect. Actually, it feels like an ad. The content creator has to obviously say it's an ad to some extent, which is good. I'm, I'm open to that. But it's about, yeah, what is the disconnect there and how are they missing something? I think that Content creation is moving in this area where actually it's not about huge influencers anymore. It's more about micro-influencers and it's more about giving the product to them and not curating it too much and saying, okay, you sort of do your thing and hopefully it will work for us and we can put it out there as well. Um, Because I think we got used to it for a while of, okay, someone's going to do a different tone of voice just for this post and then they're going to switch back to themselves again. Mm. And I think that got confusing for people. But again, I think the thing that's really interesting that happened during COVID is the brands lost control because they were literally sending stuff out to models' houses and saying, okay, you shoot it. If it's good, we'll, we'll put it live. Yeah. We got to use that, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're, you send us what you made and we, we're going to use it unless it's very bad. But I didn't mean to jump in on you, Kevin, but that's a really great point. We've talked about it on this podcast that we did relinquish a lot of control across the board, all the way down to like quality of PDP images. Everybody accepted that things weren't going to be what they were before because everybody was shooting from home, shooting from a lockdown studio, shooting with a small team. It was entirely different. We learned that we can survive in that situation for the most part. You know, I think if there's any kind of small positives that came out of that situation, that for content creators, that was one of those things. That actually, you can say, I can be versatile, I can give my own stamp of identity to this imagery, and hopefully it still works for the brand. And yeah, I think you're right. The customer was a lot more accepting and open of it. And now that transition has kind of happened, we haven't automatically had to go back to really heavily curated brand content. Um, Mm. I think the change is here and it will kind of stay. And I'm really interested in how it continues to progress now. Let's pivot now and let's talk about some of the work that you're doing on the studio design side. So you've shared some stuff on LinkedIn and other places about you very generously. And I thanked you for this via email, but I think this is the first time we're talking when we did a webinar a while ago and I had drawn up a fake studio and you did a really nice 3D rendering of it. I've been using that as a great example of what like a smaller content studio can look like. I'm going to tell you why this has been on my mind recently, the work that you're doing in this space. I started teaching a product photography course at Art Center College of Design, and I hadn't gone and done a lighting diagram in a while. And I realized that I needed a bunch of lighting diagrams. I needed to draw a bunch of lighting diagrams for my students to illustrate different types of, basically different production types, like how you would light flats versus ghost mannequin versus on model for e-com, et cetera, et cetera. And still to this day, there is only really like one lighting diagram creator online and the set of icons that it uses for equipment don't make any sense at all for most studio situations. And I ended up drawing it all by hand with my iPad with like, you know, some drawing tool and cleaning it up. And But you've been working on making models of studio equipment, of common setups so that you can create, visually create these spaces virtually and explore them and work with them a little bit before you ever even get into 
the actual physical space itself. How has that process been going for you and how has it helped your design process? I mean, from one side, I think it's been going pretty well. I think I approach it from a similar direction to, to how you mentioned. I used to teach lighting to students and, you know, I have weekend courses and so on. And one of those things was, okay, how do you describe the lighting situation? And yeah, it's that thing. We all use the same lighting diagrams and they were fine, but I was using them like 10 or 12 years ago. So what I really wanted to do was create this kind of world where actually I can make a 3D, I can, you know, actually visualize, you know, okay, this is an arrowhead head or this is a C-stand. Because one of the things that's really important is if you put that on a 2D plan, someone has to understand, okay, how do I move around it? How high is it? You know, can the photographer sit or stand under that light, for example? And mm. those things that become really crucial for tabletop photography, product photography, or model photography, you can't really see that on a 2D plan. The other way that I also approach this is when I was a studio manager, I used to give lighting diagrams to people and everybody has a very different way of visualizing what a 2D plan is. So mm. I thought, well, you know, if I can draw this in 3D, then this is a good starting point. And on an iPad, someone can literally skim around, they can see all the angles, they can see where they need to be positioned and so on. So that was kind of my starting point to try and solve a problem. But then it was a case of, okay, well, how do we get the correct, diagrams. And a lot of it, you can actually buy the 3D objects, obviously, and some of it we've just created ourselves. You know, we've hired some kit, we've measured it, we've photographed it, we've drawn it in detail over and over again hmm. and tried to place it in context of a space. So that's kind of how we started to approach it. Then one of the real benefits for me is then the client can really understand, okay, well, yes, how does this translate into space? Does it feel like it's a good space? Does it feel like the photographer has enough room to shoot and they're not constantly backing up against, you know, an octa or something? Hmm. So that, that's kind of our whole approach and where we've kind of tried to get to with it. I can't agree with you enough that 2D floor plans, especially when you get like, when you're talking about at the set level, it certainly is true. But then when you expand on that to the studio level, 2D floor plans often betray your ability to actually move around that space. It looks like it's going to be fine. <laughs> but for one thing, like, you know, for like the lighting diagrams that I was drawing for my students, I was only drawing head and modifiers and not bothering to draw out like the feet of the stand that they're on. But when you actually go to build that out, you find out really quickly that I can't, you know, I've got a tangle of C-stand feet in this corner back here that my stylist needs to be able to walk around in. And by the way, Tale as old as time of the ambitious photographer building out their set and realizing they've left no room for their stylist to actually do their job. I think anybody who's listening to this podcast who's done floor plan work for a studio or even a set realizes that you can get away with a lot more on paper than reality will be able to accommodate. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I think that last point is really interesting to me because, you know, I've had this before where I've designed something 2D and then I think actually it gets really close to the build time and I started to panic and think, are we really going to get all of these, you know, 34 sets that we planned? Is it all really going to fit in the way that we want to? Or am I going to have, you know, 34 photographers that are complaining every day? Um, and as a consultant, that's obviously really key that I solve that, that problem. And one of the other reasons was I'm a big fan of lighting rigs. And if we can get everything up onto the ceiling, then we'll always try and do that. So one of the reasons for drawing all the stands and feet was to be able to show the clients, actually, you've asked for, you know, a seven meter space to shoot in, for example. And when you put all the stands down, it becomes really boxed in and claustrophobic. And how about a lighting mm. rig? A lighting rig is a big expense. So you need to really be able to demonstrate to someone quickly, okay, this is the benefit for it. Um, and then the other thing is I like really clean sets whenever possible um, because the photographer, will, they'll always introduce more equipment. So you want to kind yeah. of try and stop them from doing that. Yeah. 
So the 3D model is, is trying to solve many different problems. And it's really about creating an environment where, yes, you know, the stylist can walk in and they say, actually, I'm crossing backwards and forwards like 150 times a day. Am I just walking over cables and stands and all right. those kind of things that get in the way? You know, that repetition of what we all know of e-commerce is really, really important when you're trying to solve a space. And in 3D, yeah. that becomes a lot more understandable a lot more quickly. Totally, yeah. I mean, and the repetition is a big reason that you want to think a lot about the way that you're designing these sets. Like, I, I, what the way that I used to to, to describe it is this idea of building a nest. And this was more for specifically for I had a disagreement with somebody about how our tabletop hard goods sets should be laid out because we were creating, in, in my opinion, and I think this is the correct opinion, <laughs> we were creating an opera. We were creating situations for people to do way more walking than they need to do because of the way that the diagram came down from headquarters somewhere else. And they said, this is how we want these hardline sets to be laid out. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, if I want to go get a, pr a new product off the rack, I got to walk to the other side of the space that I'm shooting on and then walk clear to the other side again, back to the shooting table. When my philosophy was let's build, I built a space where you had basically like a, a triangle of space that was like three and a half feet on each side, an equilateral triangle that you had your shooting table, your capture station, and your rack of product that all you had to do really was just pivot. Grab product, put it on the table, capture stations here, and then everything you needed was within a step or two in any direction. And like, was met with resistance on that when I'm like, this is objectively a better situation because I'm not doing that thing where I'm trying to both duck underneath an octobox while also stepping over a c-stand leg and doing that you know that like scene where you're where you're climbing through the lasers to steal the gem from the bank or whatever like that we don't have to work like that yeah sure i mean i think it's a really good example and i had a similar thing when i visited a client of that there was a step up and as, as the time you were stepping up you were bending under an octa as well the exact same scenario <laughs> that's a really tough situation to put yourself right. in and, yeah. you know, the stylist is doing that and they're bringing clothes right. in or a handful of, you know, shoeboxes and so on. And it's like, well, this is a hazard. But also my job is very much, you know, I design the space and then sort of I leave it. But to some extent, I visit at some point. And, you know, I don't want a bunch of stylists coming up to me and saying, oh, why did you make me do this, this extra step? Or, you know, yeah, this is why, really inconvenient for me. Yeah. Why'd you include a koi pond on our live model set? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's really trying to kind of solve problems, but also show everyone actually there's more efficient ways of doing this. And, you know, my background, I think, is similar to yours. We were both at Amazon, and it's very much about how can you be really efficient with this? And can you solve this in a different way? And can you really yeah. rethink that problem? And that's what we're trying to do with this. And I also kind of want to add, you know, I think these 3D tools are really helpful. There's, there are other tools that you can use that are 3D out there. And I would just encourage anyone that's designing a set to, you know, have a look what is available and start to think about it in that way. It doesn't have to be our tools that, you know, there's other ways of doing that. But it's, Do you mind shouting out some tools just because I'm going to either you can shout them out on the podcast or I'm going to email you right after we record this and ask you what they are because I want to play around with them. Sure. OK. Well, I mean, we use Shaper. Shaper 3D is iPad um, 3D design. You can set up something very basic in that. You know, you don't need a lot of skills to kind of say, OK, well, here's my box. It's 12 feet by 18 feet or whatever those needs to be. And you can create spheres and, you know, different things in that. That has a is a good learning curve, but also you can you know begin to really kind of flesh out space in there. Also, there's lighting simulation tools that you can use. So, Satellite is is yeah. one as well, um, which you can you can begin to kind of build objects into that, and you can also actually now make something in Shape of three D, and you can bring it into Satellite. So you can design and build and grow kind of as you want to with that. 
Um, so I think it really is about finding someone in your studio that wants to kind of geek out a little bit, is sort of nerdy about, yeah, I know how to draw something on an iPad or I want to do that and beginning to kind of understand how they can translate space. And then you kind of are away with it, you know? Yeah. Shape of 3D is awesome. You know, I, I really, when I first kind of picked up that, I'd never used 3D design in that way before. But because it's drawing directly onto an iPad, it's so intuitive and, it, and it's yeah. great to, to use that. That sounds perfect for me, yeah, because I, I like to do a lot of that work on the iPad with the Apple Pencil and that kind of thing. Right. I'm really interested to know what your thoughts are, Kevin, on like leveraging some of these tools for the future of the business that we're in. Meaning like, you know, like you mentioned about tools for looking at like not just lighting diagrams, but looking at what like different lighting setups might actually do. And it's occurring to me that this is a big part of the future of studio design process where it's not we're having a test day in the studio and we're going to like see what different modifiers do. We're going to be doing all of that in a virtual environment first so that we can identify budgets for new equipment if it's a new studio build out. You've been working on some things with like Unreal Engine that you should be able to do very, very, I think, accurate lighting, exam like examples of what lighting setups could do with something like Unreal Engine with tools that are getting easier and easier to use and are more and more available to the average person. And just as an example of this, I'm rambling a little bit. I'm going to get to the point here. I was working on a still life shot, just a tabletop still life shot for myself last night. And I was looking at it on my, my process is to shoot it and then look at it on my phone because that's where most people are going to look at it. So then I, mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time with it and decide what I like. I decided I didn't like the way that it was laid out, but I didn't want to come back out to the studio. It was getting late and I didn't want to be sitting there fiddling with like, nudging little things here and there. I, I, I say it like it's a bad thing. I love doing that, but I just wasn't in the mood for it. It occurred to me that I could bring all of these this image into photo room, isolate each individual object, and then mock up my still life right there. I was doing this by sketching, which is like, you know, photographers have been doing sketching still life stuff forever. And then I was like, I can just do this with photo room on my phone. And I have like really well... Like they look better than they should. They're not, they don't look as good as when I shot them, but I have really nice mock-ups of some options that I'm going to be able to come back to set with and knock out pretty quickly and see how they go and then kind of fine tune from there. This is an element to some of these new technologies that I hadn't really thought about, which is just that pre-planning phase. Like imagine doing your whole pre-light day for a big client in Unreal Engine instead of doing it in the actual space. It seems like it's game-changing potentially. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I've been interested in Unreal Engine for uh, about three or four years now, seeing what people are doing it from a kind of movie set point of view and seeing how they're configuring lighting and so on in there. And I've always been thinking about this, you know, how can we do this in a studio environment for photography? And what I wanted to try and do is create an environment where you can, yeah, you can come back to it. You say, okay, I always know what the parameters of my set are, but what equipment can I bring into this? How can I reconfigure lighting? How can I just pass that on to the art director, get their approval? We know what kit we need to order. We can send that to the production team and they can order the kit if it's a higher end and so on. And I wanted to see if, you know, you can tie that whole ecosystem together. And obviously there isn't like one piece of software that necessarily does that at this point. But we wanted to kind of approach her. I wanted to approach her from that way and saying, okay, all the base models exist, the pieces of kit exist within your kind of plan, and how can you bring them in and, you know, make those small changes? So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting way of working for me. And similar also, you know, I, I like to go back and reconfigure lighting, and it can be just an endless thing. But actually, if you're doing it in a kind of virtual world, it's much quicker. You can see the change. You can see, actually, if I change this by like 10 degrees, I can see it's kicking off to somewhere else, and I need to move the light again, for example. And I think that that's, that's the way that we all have to start working now. It shouldn't be so sort of 
esoteric in a photographer sort of standing there and going, oh, I feel I know what the light is going to do. It's just, well, show me. And then pass that diagram on to someone else and, you know, your assistants can go and set it up. Yeah. The other thing also that I think is really interesting is that there's that crossover between your PDP shots and then your kind of elevated e-commerce. And it's now all beginning to happen, obviously, in the same studio. So you've yeah. got to go to the whoever's your lighting person and, you know, your your tech person and say, well, I need this this kit on set. So, you know, send them a diagram and they can get it set up for you. And then you're, you know, reducing your setup time and your cost for actually producing that elevated content. So trying to bring it all into one space if, if it's all possible. Yeah. There's a future that's not that far away where photographers around the world are going to be up very late at night, lying in bed with their iPad, fine-tuning the lighting for their shoot the next day. (laughs) Well, I mean, because also it's like, you know, when I go shoot a new product launch campaign for a client, right? The last time I shot one of these was the second half of, no, that's not the last time. The last time I did it on location in the studio was the second half of 2020. And it's that I have that I'm an anxious person. I struggle with anxiety at a lot of different places in my life. One of those places is, do I have all the equipment that I need? (laughs) It usually results in me loading up the car with everything that I have because I don't know what's going to come up, what I'm going to need. I don't want to be there and need that one last bit of foam core and not be able and not have it with me. Being able to plan your lighting with a tool that you trust virtually And then saying, like, now spit out the equipment list that I need for this. Or like you said, give that to the procurement team so that they can buy all the stuff they need to outfit their new studio. You build in some checks and balances to make sure that you've got yourself covered in different places. But it seems like a a revolutionary sort of way to do pre-production for for photo shoots now, which is to do a lot of it virtually so that you know exactly what you need. Like you said – generate a lighting diagram that my assistant can get there and start setting up the lighting right away. And now we're doing this whole process much faster, still achieving the same level of quality that you expect from the photographer that you hired, but it's taking now a day instead of three days or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think the anxiety piece is an interesting take on it also, because I was the same, you know, I used to do lighting for people and we'd be doing like a Italia Vogue shoot and we'd be on location somewhere and I'd have to order all the kit and set it up. And, you know, sometimes you forget something and it's not on your kit list and you're like, I'm literally on an island in Italy and I can't get it now. So how can yeah. I, you know, improvise? So I yep. used to yeah, stay up and panic about those things. The other, I guess, kind of important point for me is that, you know, a lot of the time I hand over what I'm designing in a studio to an architect or to a construction team and so on. And they need to know physically, you know, how is that light going to grip onto the piece of scaffold or whatever that we've right. made our lighting rig out of? And someone has to have ordered that maybe two or three months in advance because they're buying all the new kit for a studio. And, you know, I need to know, is this a, a junior pin or is this, you know, some Manfrotto clamp? What, what is it that's fixing mm-hmm. it there? And do we have 45 of them because we're building, you know, X amount of sets? So I wanted to kind of try and get every piece of kit into this virtual planner so that at least I can speak to someone and say, okay, this is what you need to order. This is the cost. Say to the construction team, okay, you need to supply a different gauge of pipe or whatever that is to to get the grip that we need for it. So a lot of it does come from an anxiety panic point of view. Yeah, well, you even just mentioned about a problem that I didn't even consider trying to solve. But I think anybody listening to this is familiar with this process where you've got a new piece of equipment that you just got into the studio. You go to try to set it up. And you realize that you don't have the right size pin. And it turns into this job of digging through your box of random stuff till you can find the right combination of attachments that you can Frankenstein together to like mount that new light or whatever it was that you got. I've done that at every studio I've ever worked at. I've had to jury rig some 
super clamp to a different kind of pin to a different thing over here because I just I you order that stuff and you don't think about like what are all the right size pins, the right format pins. There's those hexagonal ones versus the ones that are just round that fit in the super clamps and all of that stuff. And then you end up not even being able to use the expensive equipment you just bought for a week because you got to order that other pin or whatever. That's I never even considered that a problem that you could solve just because it was such a a thing that was tangential to like, you know, the rush of finally getting CapEx to buy new equipment. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to kind of be clear to everyone, we're not perfect with this at this point. You know, we're still working Fair. through this this process. <laughs> but, you know, similar thing, I have been on set where, you know, we're missing something integral when it's going to clamp a camera or something. And then suddenly we're like, well, how do we solve this problem? And, you know, maybe Amazon will have to deliver us something in two hours. But, you know, I can't do that for a client if there's, 45 sets just about to start the next day. Right. So it's really about trying to solve that problem and scale it up at the same time. So, yeah, that's one of the kind of areas we're trying to make a solution. But also, I guess also to kind of not to go into too labor of the point, but I would then have to go to a lead photographer at my client and, you know, he would look in the store cupboard and say, okay, these are the pieces that I want to use. So then I would kind of need to go back to my diagram and say, okay, we're going to change something. So it kind of is, you know, it's a two-way process with the client also with these 3D models. Very cool. Just we'll spend just a couple of seconds talking about this last thing because I really want to talk about it with you. And I, I really value your time, Kevin, and don't want to wait till the next time we can connect. I'm curious to know what feedback you got from people on the LED versus strobe thing. I have some thoughts about this for myself, but I'm curious to know, did you, did you get some feedback from people? Did you get some interactions with some folks about this topic? Yes. I mean, the reason I wrote the blog post was because I had a lot of real world feedback. And I've been I've been sort of trying to convince people that LED is a, is a route that they should go down. But there's a lot of, I guess, pushback. There's a lot of people that are very used to, oh, well, I've always shot in this way, or I need the power of strobe. And I think there's some really important arguments for that. But also, yeah. I like to try and back something up with evidence and say, well, actually, you know, the Lux Lumen of this LED light is really powerful, and we just need to consider that. The other reason that I really wanted to approach this was the sheer kind of electrical upscale costs of if you're planning in your studio and you're putting strobe sets everywhere and you've got to run new circuits through a building, which is a thing that we have to kind of challenge a lot of the time, then that build cost is huge. And yeah, LED that's a huge, that's a huge, huge, huge part of a pro any project is running electrical for something like that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things that can really make or break a project you know, do you have the budget to do this? So that's where I wanted to come from. I wanted to try and build an argument that I know in my mind I'm fairly convinced about LED. I use a lot of LED myself, but I know it's not going to solve everything. Yeah. And there will be some sets that, you know, they really need to control movement. And there's things that strobe can still only do that LED can't at this point. Yeah. For, what, for what my are your part, so I, yeah, I want to share. Yeah. So, so for me, LED is an absolute slam dunk because I'm tabletop still life. And like, there's a way of working with LED lights using live view. I'm a big, huge, 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 huge advocate for shooting with live view with the biggest possible screen that you can put your live view feed up on because I'm sitting there and it's what you see is what you get. Like it's, I'm looking at the feed through the camera. The lighting on set is exactly what it's going to be when I snap that shot. I can see like such minute details about the way that the light is interacting with that product. And it works phenomenally well for tabletop product or still life. The downsides are it is it's a lot of light all the time, you know, like it's a lot of light output all the time. My studio is very bright. I can get lights in a position where it makes it hard to see my screens. It's shining in my eyes. It's not super comfortable, but I'd say that's a really small part of it. When you're talking about on model, I think 
for the same reasons that you brought up in the blog post, there are a ton of really great reasons to try to light everything with LED constant lights because it just makes you immediately video ready without the issue of having different, even slightly different lighting setups or anything like that. When we used to shoot stills and video at the commercial studio, we, for a while, we were doing, we were basically duplicating our LED video setup with strobes right next to each head so that we could still shoot with strobe. We didn't have enough power out of our LEDs, but that was a an LED issue at the time. In 2019, they weren't powerful enough for you to really be able to convincingly stop motion or you just had to be really careful and you weren't getting the sort of crisp images that your customers were were looking for. Now I know that those LED lights have gotten definitely bright enough for you to get really nice, crisp images. The thing that I think that, and I don't recall, if you mentioned this in your blog article, I apologize. I looked for this idea specifically and I didn't notice it in there. There's a difference for the model, right? For one thing, again, that light issue, those lights are constantly on and it makes being on set a much different experience than just with like low level modeling lights and strobe. But also the actual flash of the strobe itself is an important cue for talent on set a lot of the time. Seeing that flash go off lets you know when you're done. Like when you're done, I'm done with that look, I'm done with that pose, I can relax for a second, I can compose myself. And so I've wondered if anybody is out there shooting, you know, shooting LED lights for their models, but then have a low power strobe just for that part of it, you know, just like pop that strobe just so the model knows when the shot has been taken, because there's otherwise you have really no idea. And if you're shooting with a mirrorless camera, you don't even have the sound to go off of, really. So those are kind of my things is I recognize there's going to be resistance to it for a lot of reasons. And I think a lot of reasons is the onset experience for both the talent and for the photographer is dramatically different and maybe in some ways more uncomfortable because of the, um, the high level of illumination at basically all times. Yeah, I, th- I think they're good points. And I have a second blog post that's kind of being developed. It's just a sort of deep dive into some of these areas as well. But your point about the model kind of knowing whether the shot has occurred is actually something that uh, was brought up in one of the LinkedIn comments. I can't remember who made that comment now, and I'll go back and find it. But it was in, I think it was in reference to a comment from the Pro Photo team. But yes, it's about getting a different rhythm then. It's about getting a different communication style that happens between the photographer and the model because, yeah, you know, that bang, 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 pop, pop, pop of the strobe is something that everybody knows, you know, on the the e-commerce set and you get into a real flow. So I think that's one thing to watch for. The other area also, yeah, with LED, you know, my approach to this also similar to yours was I was with the kitchen brand, you know, they were really photographing super reflective items with a photographer that wasn't really, really experienced in product photography. So we're like, well, LED is the only way I can show you how to do this and you can immediately see what you're doing. And, you know, if you're moving a knife, it's literally like half a millimeter and then it's, you know, got a reflection. So LED is amazing. I just got really excited because I didn't even realize how important this was until last week's class at Art Center when I was I did a demonstration of an LED lit set for the students and I showed them on live view on the projector. I was like, I had never really done this exercise before as part of like training somebody or demonstrating something for a student, which is that like. I can walk around this product and I can look at any weird reflection in this product. We were shooting a little bo- a little like beauty product, a little glass bottle with a very reflective cap. And I was like, look at this weird line in the cap. I can walk around this set and I can figure out what's happening, what's causing that. Oh, look, it's the bend in my acrylic. The light's hitting it weird. It's kind of magnifying. And so I just need to move this off or I need to flag this. And every- you could hear them in the room going, oh. And if you're doing that with strobe, 
It's move, pop, check. Sure. Nope, don't quite get it. Move, pop, check. And maybe you never get it. But with yeah. that Ellie, like, you know, you could, I mean, it's insane the the level to which I can fine tune my lighting down to like splashing one little highlight on one little area only because it's LED and shooting with live view. I couldn't do that any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And for that reason, I think it is a real game changer. And, you know, if you are training people or a lot of my job is about giving people, you know, a lighting document that they can then work with for the next, you know, year or so. And I want to really be able to be sure that they can troubleshoot those things when I'm not there or my team isn't there with them as well. So, you know, being able to set it up and say, okay, if you move this, you can physically see this happen on the screen. Then it's, you know, that's really helpful for everyone. The other thing I just want to come back to with the model shots is, you know, I'm really passionate about the idea that photography and video are really going to become so much easier constantly in PDP. And we should create an environment where anyone, whether it's a creator of any kind that's got TikTok or so on, can just walk into a studio and it makes sense to them. And LED will make sense because it's just lit. Totally. It will look like it's outside or whatever they're used to. And they can just start creating their content. And that yeah. might be scary for other photographers, but... For the content creators, I want to create a space where they can just feel at home immediately. And Strobe does not do that. It's very similar to the shift from film to digital, which is that when you were only when the only option was to shoot film, you had to not only be a photographer who really understood lighting and composition and all of those other things, you had to know all of the technical, you had to have all of that technical, basically scientific ability to operate a film camera. Now with digital photography, it's much easier to learn. It's much more accessible. But the concept of teaching somebody what's going on when you're shooting strobe, especially if you're mixing strobe and natural light, that's the area that is now requires a lot more technical knowledge that sort of separates the hobbyist from the professional if you want to make that line of demarcation. And and what you're just, yeah, with LED, it's so that it, it now removes the need for understanding the way that exposure works because exposing for strobe is like entirely different. The other thing, another, I think there's probably a pro anacon for the led side of things is it really unlocks more of your camera's functional ability because like sync speed with strobe is a problem that you bump up against all the time. You can only shoot for any non photographers who listen to this. You can only shoot up to a certain shutter speed. Most of the time when you're shooting with strobe, otherwise you end up with black bars in your image. And that really, like, that, that is a limitation that you bump up against all the time that doesn't exist with LED. I hope we're not getting too kind of nerdy for everyone, but I'm sure there's some people Very who really nerdy. love this. <laughs> yeah. But, the, you know, I, I think some of the best content creators that I see are people that, that wouldn't necessarily think that they know a huge amount of photography, but they right. really know about how to make amazing imagery. And they're shooting content at home, and, you know, they're kind of in that, like, 18 to 25 bracket, and they've come at it from a different way of just growing up with a phone and being amazing at making content on the phone. And I kind of want to reach out to those people and say, okay, there's a space in a studio for you, and you can make beautiful imagery for this brand as well. Because, yeah, you're right, there is a real degree of understanding that you need to have about strobe and that the environment is kind of off-putting and so on. You know, there's lots of things that can be intimidating about it. And I really want to kind yeah. of unpack that and say, hey, come into this space and some make some great content for sure. Yeah. Kevin, that's uh, this is going to be a, a good long episode, which I think some listeners will be happy for. We've had a couple of shorter ones recently, but I think it's a good conversation. I'm going to really try hard not to, to cut too much of this out. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I genuinely and sincerely mean it when I say that you are one of the smartest people that I've met in this industry through the process of hosting this silly podcast. I always walk away with some really cool things to think about whenever we get a chance to talk. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I don't know quite what to say to that compliment, but I really appreciate it. And, you know, I do love having these conversations also. It's just great to kind of dig into, you know, some of the thought process that goes behind, you know, what we all do every day or what we're trying to help other people do every day. And if we can make it better for people, then that's, that's a great thing. Absolutely. All right. Until next time, Kevin. Thank you, Daniel. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Kevin Mason, and thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. Hey, Ian. <laughs>